So today we are beginning a new sermon series. It's entitled Transformed. We're going to be talking about the transgender issue in this sermon series. Now hearing that, uh, some of you may be a little bit nervous about what I'm going to say. I'm a little bit nervous about what I'm going to say, and I know what I'm going to say. But let me take this opportunity to kind of set the table for uh, the rest of the series, what it's all about. It, this is a series, first of all, about people. A series about people. In Psalm 100, verse 3, God made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Anyone want to take a guess at what the most widely read magazine is in the United States today? People. People's a good guess, especially in light of what I have up here. But it's not people. People is second. It's AARP, American Association of Rehired People, believe it or not. That's the most widely read magazine. People is a close second. Now, what uh, people differs from other magazines, really, pretty much just in the title, because almost all magazines are about people. AARP is about old people, right? Newsweek is about newsy people, Sports Illustrated about sportsy people, and um, Wall Street Journal about rich people. But we love people, and we are driven by people, focused on people. That may be a part of our God image. God is our good shepherd, and at, at his bullseye, what he cares about is people. So as we, we talk about these transgender issues, we're talking about people. Now, like us, we have lots of things in common as human beings, and yet we're all significantly different, unique. Our journeys are, are different. That is true of the trans experience as well. So let me tell you three stories this morning. We'll start with Leslie. Leslie was born female, but from the time she was four years old, she experienced life as a boy, thought like a boy, played like a boy from four years old. Leslie says, when all the other little girls wanted to play to your house, I wanted to play football. At the age of four, I proclaimed that Wonder Woman was going to be my wife and we would have superpower children, thought nothing of it. Leslie also remembers loving Jesus from a very young age. She says, my earliest memories are of the church nursery and Sunday school. I've always known that I was a beloved child of God. I can't remember a time when God's truth was not an integral part of my life. Leslie's struggle increased with age, making it hard to fit in at the youth group. She said, I started to feel a distance between myself and other girls. I could not relate to their emerging womanhood. They were spending hours putting on makeup, styling hair, talking about boys. None of that interested me in the least. Like most kids struggling with their gender identity, Leslie was struggling alone. No one to talk to, no one to listen, nobody seemed to care. Leslie sank into dark periods of depression, and when isolation met depression, suicidal thoughts quickly followed. She said, I lived this charade until high school rolled around, becoming increasingly despondent and suicidal. Finally, Leslie summoned the courage to go to her minister for help. She explained her dysphoria to him, hoping for some pastoral guidance. Instead of offering guidance, Leslie recalled, my minister escorted me out the back door of his office and told me to never come back again. And I didn't step foot in a church for the next 18 years. I hated Christians, especially pastors, from that point on. Leslie, desperate to follow Jesus, was ushered out of the church simply because she struggled with gender dysphoria. So this is a sermon series, people like Leslie. Also, people like Stephanie. Now, uh, before I get into her story, the next slide up here is not going to be a picture of her. This is theology in the raw. That's a podcast I simply want to make you aware of. Here's a little homework assignment for those who choose to accept it. Uh, find this podcast. 
you don't know how to do that, get your grandkid to show you how to find a podcast on your phone to listen to. Uh, Dr. Preston Sprinkles, a conservative theologian, he runs this podcast for the last two or three years, over 800 episodes on there on various topics. However, he's got a mini-series called The Diversity of Trans, The Diversity of Trans, six episodes in which he, he interviews six people and their trans experience. And the first one's my least favorite, uh, two through six are exceptional. I, I encourage you to seek that out. If you want to do a little homework, get more conversant with the terminology and where people are coming from, seek this out, look for that little mini-series and listen to it. And part of what it illustrates is in the title, the diversity of trans. All trans experiences are not the same. So I think you'll find it interesting, kind of unexpectedly edifying and inspiring as many of these folks talk about the intersection between their faith and what they're experiencing in their gender dysphoria. So I'm going to leave that up for the next four or five minutes here. Stephanie grew up as a stereotypically feminine girl. When she was 13 years old, she told her mother, Carol, that she was transgender. Stephanie's declaration seemed to come out of nowhere. No prior history of gender dysphoria. No tomboyish interest or behavior. Carol found out that Stephanie had just heard a presentation about being transgender at school, a school where over 5% of the student population identified as transgender or non-binary. Carol took Stephanie to a gender clinic to seek counsel. The clinician told Carol that she must refer to her doctor with masculine pronouns, call her by a masculine name, and buy her a binder to flatten her chest. He recommended no therapy, there was no consideration of the social factors that obviously affected her thinking. She was directed to put Stephanie on puberty-blocking drugs. Now, doctors often rec recommend puberty-blocking drugs for prepubescent children wrestling with their gender identity, even though there's not a lot known about the long-term health risks when kids take these drugs. And from what is known, they may have an adverse effect on a person's bones and heart and brain. Nevertheless, clinicians told Carol that puberty blockers were the best way to treat her 13-year-old daughter. She says, I was falsely assured these drugs were well studied, that they were a perfectly safe way for her to explore gender. I was told that I'd, if I did not comply, she might be at a higher risk of suicide. Carol feared that if she pushed back or questioned the medicalization of her child, she might lose custody of her, since such questioning could be viewed as bigotry and a lack of acceptance. In New Jersey, where Carol and Stephanie lived, the Department of Education officially encourages schools to report such parents. Still, Carol wondered, why are the physicians medicalizing children in the name of an unproven, malleable gender identity? So this sermon series is about people like Leslie and Stephanie and Carol. By the way, if you noted, Leslie's story is very different from Stephanie's. Stephanie's is what they call late-onset gender dysphoria versus early onset. And a third story, Alan grew up as a preacher's kid, but he couldn't wait to leave the church after he graduated high school. Ever since he could remember, Alan had an unchosen desire to dress, act, and behave like a woman. He had no one to talk to, no one to guide him, and seeing the church's attitude toward LGBTQ people made him feel even more isolated 
and ashamed. He says, despite being a preacher's kid, I'd become upset at the hypocrisy of Christians saying they were full of grace, but not putting it into practice, especially concerning LGBTQ issues. After high school, Alan left the church, but he couldn't get away from Christians. And one day a Christian friend asked to hear Alan's story. So Alan told him everything. His desire to be a woman, his sexual attraction to men, his failures in trying to follow his own convictions about sexual ethics. Alan expected to be condemned. To his surprise, he was loved. He says, instead of the shaming and condemnation I expected, I was told that despite my past and present desires, God didn't hate me, and I was lovable by others and by God. These simple words pierced his soul. Alan became a Christian, in part because he shared his story with a friend who received him graciously. Alan says, if I'd never encountered pure, undistilled grace, I would have transitioned to a female and left the church. The thing that brought me to an acceptance of biblical masculinity was not a poignantly laid out exegetical argument against transsexuality, nor a fire and brimstone diatribe against homosexuality, but a man who gave me the space to speak about my desires openly and let me know that he and God loved me nevertheless. So three very different stories about people. It's a series about people. It's also, secondly, a series about nuance. Jesus says in John 7, 24, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. What is nuance? Nuance means a subtle distinction or variation. It is sensibility to, awareness of, or the ability to express delicate shades of meaning, feeling, and value. Now, it is not unchristian or unbiblical to be nuanced. Some people might equate nuance with compromise, and that's simply not the case. Some people may be thinking, Steve, why do we even need to have a series on trans? Just quote Genesis 5-2 and be done with it. Genesis 5-2 says, God created them male and female. There you go. End of story. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. Mic drop. Well, we're going to look at Genesis 5-2. We're going to look at a lot of other scriptures as well. But like so many other things, it's a little more complicated and nuanced than that. I believe Jesus was very nuanced. You think about that. When somebody came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How did he respond? He didn't just lay it out. He said, well... What about the law of Moses? What does that say? How do you read it? I'm trying to get the questioner to think. Recall the woman who was caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8 who was brought before Jesus. The way Jesus handled that was extremely nuanced. The folks who saw everything as black and white with no shades of gray were the ones who were holding the stones in their hands. In fact, when you think about it, the most black and white people, as you read through the Gospels, see everything black and white were the Pharisees. 
They knew God's answer for everything. They had a scripture for everything. But Jesus said of them, you're hypocrites. You're not even trying to help lift burdens from people's shoulders. When we read through the Gospels and we see how Jesus dealt with, for instance, what constitutes working on the Sabbath, it was very, very nuanced. I think that he got closer to what the Apostle Paul talks about as representing the spirit of God's law versus the letter of the law than anyone else. And that's what we're trying to do. Often there are two extremes in the trans issue and all kinds of issues, actually. But in the trans issues, one extreme is to become the culture warrior. You know, I know there's a political aspect of LGBTQ activism, for instance. There's a cultural aspect. There's a social aspect. There is bad law coming down the pike. And sometimes we just want to approach things as a culture warrior, maybe listen to our favorite political pundit as they debunk the false logic behind the clickbait headlines that we read. 10,000 genders, men becoming women, women becoming men. Can't, there's no settled science for assigning sex at birth. We like to hear that debunked and feel that vicarious thrill of winning an argument. And maybe there's a place for that. There's a place for that. But we have to be cautious about going to an extreme and not really caring about actual trans people. And a person who's sitting next to us, maybe at our work, could be at school, could be in church, who's struggling with these issues and feels like they have no one to talk to. Now, that's one extreme. Another extreme is to react against that extreme. Say, hey, I'm a lover, not a thinker. I don't need to think about the issues or the concepts. I don't need to think deeply about theological or philosophical or biblical concepts. I'm just going to love people. I'm going to be empathetic towards people. All those issues, they just harden your heart. That's an extreme as well. A few years ago, two Christian economists came out with a book entitled When Helping Hurts. And this was a book that, that dealt with the problem, problem of poverty alleviation. Talked about how a lot of people trying to alleviate poverty in other communities or countries, Christians, missionaries, will go maybe on a short-term mission trip, bring in a lot of resources, do a lot of work in that community, but when they leave, the actual community is worse off than when they came. They're actually undermining the indigenous people who are trying to work in that community, and the authors, uh, authors were saying, that's the law of unintended consequences. We need to think through how to do poverty alleviation well. Likewise, we need to think through and deal with and grapple with deep issues. Jesus is creating an upside-down kingdom where truth is proclaimed and it is celebrated. And at the same time, people who fall short of that truth, which is all of us, are loved with grace and kindness. So, a series about nuance. Thirdly, this will be a series about concepts, about concepts. God says, come now and let us reason together in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Because people are so important, and God loves people, we need to wrestle with the concepts, as we said. We'll be talking in this series about biblical, theological, scientific, medical, and philosophical concepts. We're going to spend our time at the deep end of the pool 
for the next couple of weeks. We'll address questions like, are male and female the only options? What about people who are intersex? Can someone be born with a male brain and a female body or vice versa? There have been studies on that. Do men have to act masculine and women have to act feminine to be godly? By the way, what is cultural masculinity versus biblical masculinity? What's cultural about femininity versus biblical femininity? Should a Christian ever transition? Which pronoun should non-transgender people use for transgender people and why? And ultimately, this question of incongruence. Incongruence. If someone experiences incongruence between their biological sex and their internal sense of self. This is, this is the issue. Which one defines who they are? Which one defines? And we must say, well, that's biological versus the internal sense of self. Okay, why do we say that? Somebody else says, well, that's the internal sense of self. That overrules the biology. Okay, why do we say that? That's a philosophical question, and biblical and theological. It's a question of what philosophers call ontology. Ontology, that's the study of being. What is it that makes us human beings in the image of God? Who we are so that we know what God is wanting us to be. So when we're done, at least we will be able to count ourselves among those who have fought through these issues deeply, with love, biblically and theologically. We'll be conversant with the terminology even. And not just having a knee-jerk reaction to what's going on in our world. All right, so a series about concepts. And then finally, it will be a series about kindness. A series about kindness. Ephesians 4.32, Paul writes, Be kind to each other, tender-hearted. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, I don't have this slide, but it's in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul writes, Don't you realize that it's the kindness of God that's leading you to repentance. It's the kindness of God. If someone's struggling with gender dysphoria, sexual confusion, what is the posture? What is the posture that we have toward them that is most likely to lead them closer to God? Is it one of confrontation? Is it one of hostility? Is it one of kindness? Love and openness. So we started talking about Leslie. I mean, let's do the rest of the story for Leslie. She's the one who was ushered out of the minister's office. She didn't go to church for the next 18 years. But people need love and support, and they need community, and they're going to find it somewhere. And she found it in the LGBTQ community, open arms. Uh, she met a woman named Sue. They fell in love. They were married. Sue had a, a rare disease that caused her hands to shake. And one night she had gone out to smoke a cigarette. Her hands were shaking so badly she lit herself on fire. Was rushed to the hospital with third degree burns over most of her body and three days later she died. So Leslie was desperately trying to find a church that would have Sue's funeral. Yeah, she hadn't been to church in years. The only church she even knew to call was one that Sue had volunteered at years before. So she called that church. It's the minister who picked up the phone. One of the more conservative churches in that area. She explained the situation. She said, my name's Leslie. Sue, my wife just died. We're lesbians. She said, 
I know she would have wanted a church funeral. I don't know where else to turn. And so the minister, well, what he did not say, he didn't say, well, we may be able to help, but first you need to know where we stand on gay marriage and on trans issues and on homosexuality. He didn't say that. He didn't say, this is kind of controversial. I need to check with my board first. He didn't say that. He said, Leslie, we would love to have that funeral. We'd be honored. He said, I I can't imagine what you're feeling right now. I know you must be heartbroken. He said, let us take care of all the details. He said, we'll take care of the planning. We'll take care of the costs. Just let us love you through this time. And that's what they did. And Leslie says, it was that posture and that response from a Christian and a church that opened her heart back to the gospel. And she wound up becoming a Christian and a part of that church body and a part of their ministry. She has a vital ministry, especially with teenagers who go through different kinds of confusion and listening and talking with them. But part of the point is, Leslie, Leslie's not just an issue. Leslie's not a debate. Leslie's not a, a political posture. Leslie's a person who needs the Lord. And she is not only needy, she is needed by the church. And as we go through these, ser- this, these sermons, we're, tr- we're trying to equip ourselves, equip ourselves to interact lovingly and kindly and truthfully with trans people. As we do so, let's bear in mind, there could be a 14-year-old girl in our youth group who's struggling with these kinds of issues. And if so, would she find love from us and from our church? Let's bow for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're all struggling in different ways. All of our lives are messy. None of them are are neat and tidy. Most of us are still, even at our age, are still becoming what you want us to be. And we're counting on your patience with us and your grace and your love and kindness toward us, even as your truth transforms us. We pray, God, that uh, through your word, through our thoughtful examination of, of these kinds of issues, you can help us to handle this more like Jesus. In his name we pray.